Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Stephen Lamke of The Constantines has just released a fine new solo album. We are creatures of quick need. It's called Days of Heaven. Stunned by beauty. It's out now via You've Changed Records. To the quickening beat. Visit your local record store to pick up a copy or check out you'vechangedrecords.com for more information. Winter is coming. Winter is coming. Winter is coming. And winter is coming. 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 And winter is coming. Winter is coming, and so is the fourth season of the Long Winter Art Series in Toronto. Volume 1 takes place on November 13th, featuring a ton of music, including performances by Calvin Love, Sahara, Eloquent, and many, many more. There's comedy by Laugh Sabbath. There are DJs. There's a ton of visual art happening. There's uh, arcade games curated by the Hand-Eye Society. A bunch of dance stuff is happening. There are zines. I'm hosting my Long Night with Vishkana talk show with guests Desmond Cole and Eloquent and stand-up by Matt Collins. Uh, someone invented a game called Invisible. It's a, some kind of sport. There's food. There's lots and lots of stuff. Long Winter, Year 4, Volume 1, takes place Friday, November 13th at the Great Hall, which is located at 1087 Queen Street West in Toronto. Starts at 7 p.m. It's an all-ages licensed event. Uh, Unfortunately, the venue is not wheelchair accessible. You can learn more about how to keep up with Long Winter at torontolongwinter.com. Creative Control with Beach Comic. Hello and welcome to episode 223 of this Creative Control podcast. If you've never heard the show before, this is a particularly special and unique episode. It's special because of the people who are on it, and I'll tell you more about them in a moment. Uh, it's unique because of the format. Normally this is kind of a one-on-one, you know, interview, conversation show. And it's usually, sometimes it's project-oriented, it's, it can take all sorts of forms, but it's generally kind of one-on-one, let's just have a conversation thing. But I've been tinkering with the show a little bit over the last few months. I recently posted a documentary about uh, the band Drive Like Jehu that I found very 
fulfilling. It was really fun to make. People seemed to like it, which is a plus. I enjoyed that, and I would like to do more stuff like that. And then I also have been contemplating this kind of idea of a moderated conversation where I'm there, but I'm really trying to get two people who maybe they're connected in some way. Maybe their trajectories intersect. Maybe not. I just, the idea of two people who might be like-minded or have something in common, having a conversation, that appealed to me. So that's what this is. This is part one of a moderated conversation between two people I admire greatly, Ian Mackay and Steve Albini. Ian Mackay was once in bands like Minor Threat and Embrace, and he's currently in the bands Fugazi and The Evens. He also co-founded and continues to oversee an excellent label, Discord Records, which is based in his hometown of Washington, D.C. I've interviewed Ian many times, and it's always very insightful to speak with him. Steve Albini has been in bands like Big Black and Rape Man, and he's currently in the amazing, amazing rock trio, Shellac of North America. He is very well respected. He's a recording engineer who owns and operates the electrical audio facility in the city of Chicago, Illinois, where he has lived now for a, a good long time. Now, this marks Steve's third appearance on this particular show, and, and we've also had a number of conversations in the past. And uh, he's, a, he's a very wise man. He's a very funny guy. I like talking to him. He's, one, he's basically one of my favorite people to interview, and it's always uh, nice when I have a chance to... He's busy, too. It's nice when I can schedule some time to have a chat, catch up. Now, during this conversation, Ian was in Washington, Steve was in Chicago, and I was in Guelph. So that's that's it. We were we were apart, but I'm just trying to guide them through this and th- through this conversation as best I can and, and ask some questions that lead to discussion. And so, yeah, this is part one of that conversation. Part two will be up shortly. I'll tell you more about that at the end of all of this, uh, or at, rather at the end of this episode. So here it is. This is myself and Ian Mackay and Steve Albini. So before we get into how you two first met, I'm curious about when you first encountered each other by reputation. Um, Steve, do you recall how and when you would have initially come across Ian's name? Uh, I I met Lyle Pressler, who was the guitar player in Minor Threat, when he was uh, he came to college at Northwestern. I was ignorant of the DC hardcore scene, and uh, I met Lyle. He was an assigned roommate of a guy that I had run into through the school newspaper who ended up being Nate from Urge Overkill. And Completely coincidental, by the way. Yeah. I mean, those guys, I mean, Lyle just went to college and he got ended up being roommates with Nate, which is bonkers. Hmm. Yeah. And I met Lyle through Nate and Lyle introduced me to Minor Threats music and uh, then I saw, subsequently, Lyle left school and i saw a minor threat play in chicago the next time they came through um right. and i i think i probably would have talked to lyle afterward but i i don't i don't think i met ian until i think i probably actually met you through loader at southern right no i think i met you uh the first time we met was uh at Corey's house 
I'm pretty sure. I mean, Corey and Lisa had that house. Up, oh, right, right, right. Um, um, I, in I, Ann Arbor, I don't think right? I, no, 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 no. This would have been um, not Ann Arbor. It was it was in Chicago. It was up like up north. Like, where was the house? Oh, okay. Was it Halstead or something? I don't know. It was somewhere up there. Yeah, that, yeah. That was they had a right. when right after Touch and Go moved to Chicago. I thought we had met before that. Like you were doing know. Palehead or something at Southern right after well, my Palehead, trip. Yeah, broke but up. Palehead maybe. Yeah, that'd be right because I did Palehead in eighty. Were you there when Jurgensen was there? Yeah. Okay, so yeah, that would have been. <laughs> yeah, that would have been eighty. That was nineteen eighty-seven. Yeah, that makes sense. And then that I guess we right. came out. And I guess, I guess, yeah, I guess that's right. We would have come. And then Fugazi came in spring of '88. Mm-hmm. Um, that's weird. I've forgotten that you were in, in, out there at that time. Were you, what were you working on out there? Um, uh, Big Black's last recording session was in '80. This like the spring of '87, maybe. Were you mixing it out in in London? Oh no! I now I remember what it was. We were. I remember playing yeah, football. I don't, with I don't, remember, what, I don't remember what it was. Fuck! All I know is that I had heard of. I mean, I <clears throat> I knew Lyle had gone to college. He lasted there for six months. Then he came back and reformed Minor Threat. And he had mentioned meeting people out there, but I didn't know he did. You know, I didn't. I didn't have any sense of who those people were at all. Um, and then I guess um, Minor Threat played. We played well. We played Chicago two times. Once in 1981, prior to you, you, uh, you guys meeting in college, we played at O'Banions. Um, right, and that show, sh- that show was kind of legendary. By the time I found out about it, right, and I guess wasn't didn't Santiago do sound or something for that? show? Right, Naked Raygun right. had a practice PA in the their coach house, and they would haul it to they would do punk shows with it as like a rental PA. Right, and I guess Kedsey put that show on. That um, makes sense. Or Babin, one of those two. No, it's Ketsy for sure. Cause All right. He was furious with me because I, I badmouthed <laughs> Chicago about it because they wouldn't let – it wasn't all ages. And we snuck a bunch of people through the side door when we started playing. And he was fu- – I have. I think I have, I still have letters from him angry wow. at me about that whole night. But um, but then uh, I think I really got to know your name through your writing. Um, well, actually, I knew – I guess I knew um, the band – but then you were writing for um, did you write for Matter first exposure in Matter, yeah. And you you gave Right to Spring a sort of a slag. Yeah, they were awful. Yeah, uh-huh. and, uh huh. <laughs> and and we were really like I was like how this is crazy like I I was just shocked that you know that I mean, I'd heard of you but I was in but it's also an era of the meme zine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Force exposure and Matter and all these everyone was just being really kind of the reviewing reviewers are pretty were pretty tough so then my first time really remember i remember meeting you like when fugazi came we were staying at Corey's, or maybe i was just at Corey's. but i remember talking to you and you were a very nice guy we had a really it was a really nice visit you know I, that's what i remember it was just being like well that's a nice guy even if he wrote a mean review of rights of spring which was one of the greatest bands of all time <laughs> you were aware when you met him at Corey's house that he was the author of this review no oh, of course yeah Probably. I, mean, yeah. I, I, I knew who Steve was. I'd seen. In fact, I saw. Uh, did, when did Big Black come to Washington? A I don't. Times, right? I'm really, really awful. We were there a couple of times. We played at the 930. DC, we played at. There was another. What was there was another DC Space. DC Space, right? We played at yeah, DC Space. Yeah, I saw. The yeah, first I saw time. that show. I mean, I was at that Big Black show, and I saw. I mean, I might have seen the. So that would have been too. like eighty 
86, maybe 85, somewhere in there. So I guess I, yeah, I guess we had crossed paths, but I don't know. If, mm. So I knew who Steve was at that point, certainly. And so you, you each saw each other's bands, uh, early bands, Minor Threat and Big Black. What, uh, Steve, what did you make of Minor Threat? They were about, I mean, there were a very, very small number of hardcore bands that that I could stomach, and they were at the very top of that group. Like, there were a half a dozen hardcore bands that sort of elevated the form and made it, like, non-trivial. The bulk of hardcore, uh, I I thought, was, you know, vacant. You know, really just stylistic stuff with no substance to it. A lot of, a lot of sort of Me Too kind of crap. But uh, Minor Threat, uh, there were a half dozen bands that were that you could call hardcore bands that were incredible, like uh, Minor Threat, Void, Bad Brains, Decreutzen, and it gets really thin after that. You know, Bad Brains obviously got the ball rolling, and but Minor Threat were the very best of the, the sort of super pissed off hardcore mm-hmm. bands. And Ian, uh, I presume Big Black might have stuck out when you saw them. Of course, and they were they were totally, um, you know, they they confronted the form in a way that was is you know almost upsetting. It was so intense, like the drum machine aspect of it was so ruthless, and the, you know they were loud, and they were and they were and they were, you know, their presentation was really um, in my mind, the way I recall it, just being like it's like one of those shows where you I would go and just feel I would feel like really threatened in a way just by like you know just and trying to understand what you know what the fuck these guys are up to you know and i mean it was a great they're i enjoyed the shows they were really but they were weird because i'm i'm like a really like i was coming from a really um like i'm i'm like machines are always i always have trouble especially rhythmic machines i find they're so unrelenting and i'm very interested in like the heartbeat so i like a little bit of a I like things to slide around, you know, like in terms of rhythms. But the the big black thing was so in your face, um, and so I don't know, almost like vertical. Like it just it just it just came cutting right at you. And uh, well, I think at the time there was this there was a there was a particular thing that we were reacting against. Like a lot of a lot of punk stuff was kind of positioning itself by what it was against. You know, like in a in a and. You know, sort of by by default, what you ended up being in favor of, or what you were what you were representing, right? But what at the time there was a, a kind of a, a thing in the in the underground music scene and the punk scene where people wanted to like sort of fit in, you know. So you'd see a lot of people wearing stylistic stuff that their friends were wearing as clothing. And I my interest in punk sort of predated that when it was when things were more sort of more uh random i guess like my introduction to punk was were a hundred bands none of whom sounded alike and all of whom looked different and you know and then when punk started to get formalized and hardcore started to formalize it we were reacting against this um some people would call it conformity i wouldn't call it conformity i would call it like an an impulse to fit in you know there's a there was a a, a thing like where I mean, and it manifested itself in a bunch of different ways. Like you had bands like, um, like I don't know, like REM and the Replacements and bands like that, where they were like trying to dumb down or trying to like pretty up some yeah, of these okay. adventurous impulses in order to make it 
sort of acceptable and make it more and and we were we were kind of expressing the opposite impulse which was like to revel in being outside and to like be manifestly apart rather than be in, be inclusive and inside something and i think that's what dif- what differentiated us from uh, other bands at the time which is weird i mean i mean i say that because well, that was sort of an aesthetic bands, thing there's certainly other ba- i mean i share that with you by the way like i totally my first introduction to punk was so wide ranging and so like i my mind was being blown could everything fit, but it was all oppositional in its own way, um, mm. all these different bands. I think that in a way you could think of it as conformity. I also think you could think of it as like the voting block. Like at some point it just became like the thing that made the difference. It tipped – it really tipped it over and suddenly it became something that was this huge – like it created a new um, – there's a new environment in which then like bands like yours and also like Buttholes, Meat Puppets. There were right. a lot of bands that were really – poking out in a way that was really challenging and i that's what I, I really responded to that like you can i mean for as many hardcore bands that you you may have seen i probably saw even more because they were opening for <laughs> yeah us. i can and, imagine right and you know and 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 a lot of and people were very influenced by minor threat which i of course take as a and I, i'm sure you've had this experience with you know in your band where people you get paired with them you're like okay well you know thanks we actually had that kind of covered you know when they opened for <laughs> yeah. you but um yeah but um but uh the uh and Fugazi was certainly the case too, where we played a lot of bands that were very, very influenced by Fugazi, which I'm flattered by, but also sort of again a little weird to have them opening for you. Um, but the uh, so I think that at that time in the mid '80s, you know the the punk thing that was like the early '80s, like the '81, '82, that that era was so. Um, it was very inclusive. I felt like it was like in my mind, like not. <clears throat> I don't think it was conformist. I felt like people were so hungry to connect with each other, and mm. this was the currency. But then once people started to connect, then things started to go like there was two trajectories within the punk scene, at least or the hardcore punk scene. One was sort of this very kind of almost like photocopied kind of music like you just hear everyone's on the same kind of like the breakdown for the the moshing part or whatever the kind of right, the right, musically right. style stylistically obviously the look was thing but then you also had this other component which was um a lot of like the violence became really parodied and 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 uh, you know when violence is a parody of itself it becomes even more violent um and there was like this really sort of terrible like dark thing happening in the in music uh or in the un- punk underground i should say uh by the i think in the by 83 or 84 there were people like ah, fuck this we're not going to be involved with this anymore and they just started breaking out um and you know i first saw the the buttholes in 80 i saw them in 80 1981 i thought 82 i saw mm-hmm. them in, in los angeles and they freaked the fuck out of me when I saw when them. they first started they were such a revelatory band like they were it was this this really incredible human experience seeing them play yes. just they were you know it was like what like watching a contortionist or something you know just like people like not not just like making interesting music or breaking the form of whatever the punk music paradigm was but it was like they were sort of putting themselves through something watching them on stage and it was a really great like you know really exuberant but also really like kind of wrenching thing to see and 
that you know that was one of the great disappointments of the punk scene was when bands who had that capability or who had that as part of their uh, as as part of their pedigree realized they could get away mm. with faking it. You know, right. like when they they realized they could just have a light show and then right. you know that would be and that would be like they sort of established their credentials as being a freak show or as being something you know genuine. And then it's like, well, as long as we turn up and there's a light show, then we'll be fine, you know. So, like when I saw when I saw Big Black, like for me, like the thing about that's where Big Black fit in for me. It was like it wasn't. It was like I think of music like as, as a conversation. So like people have ideas, musical ideas, and then they they put them out there, and then someone says, "Okay, I hear you, and I'm up in you." Like, or I'm gonna, I'm this is how I respond. And <laughs> you know, in Washington, that was always like early. In the 80s, I was always like all through like, the genesis of the Washington punk scene really was people seeing each other, having their mind, like seeing a band, having your mind blown and then going to the practice room like, OK, let's fuck them up. Let's do something now. So in a way, like what was happening in the 80s, mid 80s, I started seeing bands and, you know, Big Black was certainly one of them where I just was, you know, I was like, whoa, like, you know, you know, they, they're just bringing it in a way that was so intense and you know i'm a pop kind of guy i like i have a pop sensibility big black did not have as much of a pop sensibility um but it was so it was like it was riveting and it was like it was the kind of thing where i was like like you know really you know had to try and understand like you know where are they coming from and where are they trying to go with this because it was it was very powerful and the room they played in by the way i should point out was this place called i saw in dc space there's a very small restaurant right um so there was like one of those were, one of those places where there was like it was that? one of those places that were it was one of those places where there was like like a little platform rather than right. an actual stage mm. you right know? so you're just standing in basically in a living room with them just getting your face blown off right so particularly intense and earlier we talked about or you guys mentioned the band Palehead which Ian was a sort of an electronic punk collaboration with Al Jorgensen of Ministry, and it never occurred to me before we were speaking today, but was Big Black an influence on Palehead in any way? Uh, not that I... I mean... My, I would think indirectly at best, you know. Yeah. I guess so. Here's the thing about the... My, let me explain something about the Palehead thing, because it's so... That whole situation is so surreal. I was in London... I guess we should... First off, there's a, a guy named John Loder who's died in about 10 years ago now, mm-hmm. 2005 yeah. when he died, mm-hmm. um, who was, I mean, I think of this guy almost every day still. He's a very important figure in my life. And he ran a company called Southern Studios. And John came to see Minor Threat in 1983. And he was very interested in releasing Minor Threat records uh, in England. Uh, and we were in a pinch with the label, Discord, because we were incapable of keeping up with the demand uh, and we had no, since we were not really a business, we had no way to get credit at record plant. So we had to pay COD. So we would press up records. We'd sell them all out immediately. We had to pay immediately for the, you know, the, the records. We sell them all to distributors and then they just dog us for six months or something. So we had a real problem with our flow. Like we couldn't keep things in print. We had bands lined up waiting for us. So when John came to see us and expressed his interest in, um, releasing our record in England, we asked him, hey, could you press like a couple extra thousand and ship them to us so we can sell them? We need records. We don't have no, we can't press our own record. Even though we're sold, we're sold out of everything, we don't have, we can't actually repress. We don't have any money because it's all hung up in this, you know, this terrible distribution situation. 
And and we started working with him, and he became really like our partner. He pressed almost all of the records for the next you know fifteen or twenty years. We worked with him for twenty five years. Yeah, um, you really can't overstate how important Southern was for like the the underground music scene in America. I mean, Southern is an English company run by run in London by an English guy, but he did international distribution for a bunch of American labels and right. di- and also facilitated touring and gave bands a crash pad and ended up recording a whole mess of records. Uh, I mean, his studio was probably the most productive punk studio and the records that came out of there always sounded great. You know, they always had very high technical standards. That, that's how I first heard about him, actually, was he was doing, Southern was doing all the early independent label UK releases, like all the, uh, I mean, he was affiliated with the band Crass, so all of that stuff, but also, you know, Small Wonder and Rough Trade and um, 4AD, like all these small independent record labels that were just doing a really um, incredible a variety of music, different kinds of music, and all of it was done, like whenever you'd hear a good sounding record, if you look on the back, it was recorded at Southern, you know. Right. And it was really, John was a, you know, John was an incredible engineer. Like he was just a really, and he and he and mostly he just loved, he loved music and he loved people. He was just a really sweet yeah. guy. And he was really and, really uh, loved uh, being in the, ingrained in the culture of the underground music scene. Like it meant you know it meant nothing for him to like drop everything and fly to America to see a show. You know like right. he would do that spontaneously. Hmm. And you know he was you know he's a bit older. I mean, I think he was about fifty nine when he died. Does that sound right, Steve? Something like that. Yeah. So he's probably so he's you know he's fifteen years older than us I guess somewhere in that area and yeah um, so he was really that guy was just a really um, he was a huge fan but he also just he just was he just loved yeah he loved being involved um, and he was a real supporter like you know he would you know pick bands up from the airport and you know he was just a great guy so yeah. Discord really threw in with him and then Touch and Go. Also, like, you know, because I'm very good friends with Corey and Touch and Go was a label that we were Discord and Touch and Go had a real affinity. So they worked together as well. I don't know if that's how you if you know that was your connection with him going out there. I assume it was. Um, but any event, I John, you know, they had this house. I stayed at the house in it was in North London, um, an area called Wood Green. And in the garage of the house was the studio. And the there was um, and sort of. The house was actually two houses. One house was the was the operations of the of the uh, of Southern Studios, which was the uh, they had like a label, they had a distribution company, they had a production company. It was all in this one house, and the garage was the studio itself. So I was visiting and staying with the loaders, and was um, hanging out with somebody who worked there. And we were in the the sort of common kitchen area making a cup of tea, and this guy came out of the uh, studio. And I was introduced to him as Al from Ministry. I had heard of Ministry because I used to work in a record store and I knew their Arista stuff, which was um, like this sort of college. I think of like college, like really pretty like soft college electronic dance stuff or something. I don't know. I didn't really, I, I don't, yeah, I didn't care about any of that stuff. I didn't, you know, I knew it because I sold the records, but I don't know. Any, I didn't know anything about Ministry at all. Beyond that, they were on Arista, and there was some kind of softy kind of dance stuff. And um, so I was introduced to uh, Al, and Al said, "Oh, I'm really getting into hardcore," which I didn't make any sense to me that he would say something like that because I just didn't make yeah, how would that be? Um, mm-hmm. 
and it was also at a time where I was really feeling <laughs> pretty disillusioned by what people called hardcore. So it kind of made perfect <laughs> sense that he would say, I'm getting into hardcore, um, <laughs> as if it was something you could slip on, like a jacket or something, you know. Um, but he uh, he asked, you know, he said, oh, you want to hear some of the stuff I'm working on? And he was working on this uh, Revolting Cox record, I think. And it was so damaged sounding, not at all what I was expecting. And then he played this one track and he said, you know, hey, do you want to write a set of lyrics for this one song? Um, and it was, I got to say, it was a pretty damn good song. And, I, and it just caught me at a moment in my life where, you know, I didn't, I was sort of unaffiliated. It was 1986. That's when it was. I remember I was not, like I was, Joe and I had started practicing with a different drummer, but we were not in a band. Like we were just playing music together. I was unaffiliated and I had nothing really. I was like, I just took the, he gave me a cassette. I went in the house that night, I listened to it and I wrote a set of lyrics because it, it was sort of like, if you don't, if you're not in a band, it's so easy to write a fucking set of lyrics. You're not answering to anybody. So I just wrote this set of lyrics and I went down and I said, okay, I can sing this song. And I sang on it. Um, I was, you know, I liked the song. He was, I think, really struck by the fact that I was like, I have like, you know, I paced it. Like I, my timing was good. I mean, I know how to sing fast songs and I rhyme, you know, that's my, you know, that's my thing. So, so I think Al was really <laughs> pretty blown away by it. Uh, my assumption was that he was going to be putting this on his revolting Cox record. At a later date, I was contacted by Wax Tracks and said, hey, we want to do a B-side and do us a separate like a d separate project because it sounds, we love it so much. So I went to Chicago. I think it was at that time that I realized that there was like um, the Jurgensen and Wax Tracks and were not exactly like best friends with the Touch and Go people, you know, which I just didn't, I had never really thought about it. I just didn't know. Well, I didn't know. I mean, so the, I didn't know. The, thing, yeah. the thing that's weird about that sort of internecine thing was that wax tracks as a record as a record store was absolutely critical to the punk scene in chicago like that's the record store wax tracks you know and al jorgensen worked there as a you know he worked behind the counter there for years and the but wax tracks the store and jim and danny as people were absolutely instrumental to the early punk scene in right. chicago amazing people yeah, really Amazing. interesting, really just dedicated, just in love with music, really, you know. They put would, out the Strike Under record, come on. They put out the Strike Under, they they brought bands, like they brought the the Birthday Party and Bauhaus, and they brought these bands over to America on their own nickel so that they could play shows, you know. that I mean, that's kind of incredible. But, um, and, and then there developed this bizarre thing where Wax Tracks, the store, and the people that worked there sort of transformed into this club music record label and the drug scene got really heavy and the, the it was just like a it was like an alternate reality version of a of a music scene that didn't seem to relate to what Wax Tracks had been about when it was a punk record store at all. You know, it was a really baffling thing, really, to see how it went from being this sort of linchpin thing to being this bizarre kind of uh, parallel and alien thing that a, a, a lot of people who were involved in the punk scene in Chicago didn't take to the club culture. And I'm, you know, I'm one of those people. I really, it, it missed me. And I, and I thought all, all of it was stupid i thought all the music was stupid i thought all the people were stupid i thought all the drugs were stupid like i thought all the dress up stuff was stupid i, I thought all the 
like all the micro celebrity aspect of it was stupid. All the fawning and preening, like hated all of it. And wax right, I would kind share, of it. and everything Steve just said, I would share. That's why yeah. it was so bizarre that I, I just found myself, but I had no idea. I just had no clue what I was getting into. Right, you just knew Al through John Loder and thought, no, oh, this must be okay. No, actually, I just saw, met Al and he was a nice guy, and we did the track. Oh, yeah. and it sounded good. I he was perfectly nice. I didn't when I met him. He was a, actually he's a charming guy. I mean, you know, like when he's not like he was charming to me, super nice and kind of, you know, and, and I think he's talented. He's a talented dude. Um, and the but, guy that he worked with, Ion, was his, sort of his partner in crime and ministry. Ion was yeah. was an, 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 a really, really talented guy. And I, I yes. think also a pretty interesting thinker. He had I'd known him from he was in a Seattle sort of art punk band called The Blackouts. And mm-hmm. I really liked The Blackouts. I was a big fan. Yeah. And when they started, they sort of got affiliated with ministry through Al producing a single for them that um and I was like I had my suspicions of that of of, of Al at that point already and when and then there was a, it t- sort of took this kind of odd dark club kind of turn and I and uh I, at that point the blackouts were done and uh, was Rifflin in Al, the blackouts? What's that? Bill Rifflin was, Bill was in, Rifflin the blackouts, in blackouts too. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I can't. I can't remember the third guy's name, but Bill Rieflin, the the drummer, was a, just an astonishing drummer. Really, yeah, really he's an great amazing drummer. drummer. That's mm-hmm. who. That's really, right. And he ended up hanging around and being in a bunch of different, being an adjunct drummer for a bunch of different bands. He's now sort of like the the semi permanent or permanent drummer for REM and a bunch of other. He he plays drums for people sort of ad hoc. Um, the session guy. No, yeah, right. which is guy. a kind of a weird limbo that drummers end up in that I, makes me really sort of pity them, I suppose. It's like, you know, <laughs> you you get really, really good at this thing, and then from then on, you're just sort of called in to, to like, do occasional gigs, you know? <laughs> like, right. I remember a really incredible thing about Rifflin. You know, cause I got to know them, obviously, because when I went to Chicago, I, mean, I met... When I did the first thing, I only did with Al. And it was just, you know, I only met him for a day or two. Then I mm-hmm. went to Chicago and met Ion and Bill. Um, actually, Bill wasn't there the first time. I, it was uh, Eric from Naked Reagan drummed. Um, but because uh, Bill was out of town. But it was, you know, I really, Ion was great. And it was really interesting to make a song with him. And I, but I, that's when I first realized, oh, these guys are like, there's people involved here who are using a lot of drugs. It was like a different whole other, you know, I just didn't know it in England at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and I and I don't know anything about the. I mean, I've never. I don't know anything about the dance clubs, the club scene. I didn't know. I was, I was completely naive about it. And I. I mean, I could. I could write a fucking book just about my experiences. And suddenly, find myself plunged into it. But mostly, it was so interesting because like I'm so tight with Corey and people like that. And I was like, and I just assumed like not that everyone was like best friend, but I just didn't think like I just didn't. You know, like you, it's like when you like you meet somebody and you you get to town with them and they're like, everyone's like oh yeah, that guy's yeah, watch out. You know, it made you. So I was just like, wow, what have I got myself involved with here? But on the other hand, Jim and Danny, the guys who ran. Wackshack were just amazing, and the people who worked there, I liked them a lot. The people, and it was an interesting time for me to to be involved with that stuff. Um, and then I ended up doing f- four more songs with them, and that session was the one where I, it became very clear that uh, we're just a different, we're totally different people. I mean, it was just a whole mm. other thing. And I mean, one thing I was really struck by by not just a recording session, but also just the label itself was just. The like the um, excessiveness of it, like the amount of money they would spend on on recording, was just seemed outrageous. They would just spend you know 
days and days and days to do one song, which is completely opposite. You know, I'm the guy who's like, let's make an album in a weekend, you know, if you can. That's that's where I was coming from. So they they were really, and they just were, you know, and they were never sleeping, which suggested they were stimulated by something. <laughs> right. And, yeah, um, I hear you. But it was a, and, you know, but since then, you know, I told them, like, when we decided to do the record, I said, like, okay, we can do it, call Palehead. Can't put my name anywhere on the cover. I'm not going to be involved with any kind of promotional stuff, and I will never play with you. I said, not, it's like, that's it. Like, like, that's it. Like, I don't mean, you know, I'm happy. It was like an interesting project. I don't, it's not something that I do. I think you, I mean, there's not, I don't think there's any, I don't do cameos ever. Um, and that was a, just a weird, like, it was like a, it was a moment, like, I had been in that band Embrace, and that broke up, and not very pleasantly. And then I was starting to play with Joe, and I just kind of found myself in this weird, little wrinkle of time I, you know i quite like that those rec- that record the palehead songs i like them um mm-hmm. and i don't i don't you know i don't feel like I, i'm actually i feel kind of i'm glad that i had that experience and i'm glad to have gotten to know him i i'm glad to get to know him if only for the the fact that when i saw i saw ministry some years later a couple years later and riffin was drumming he was there on tour with him um and next to the the, his drum set he had a music stand on the music stand he had a copy of Moby Dick or something because the beats were so nothing that he was just reading a book every night wow that's... and for that that one fact alone made me happy that I, 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 intera- I interacted with him so anyway that's how like the Jurgensen thing was weird because like people I mean it's funny because that that whole situation did not end well for those guys they all you know they're sure. they sued each other it's like yeah. You know, it got very ugly, and I just. But I mean, I'm just like I'm out. Like nothing to do with me. Yeah, I'm not. You know. The the thing that that seemed so counterintuitive about it was that the thing that differentiated Minor Threat from all of the other hardcore contemporaries were there were two aspects of Minor Threat were that the ferocity was one. It was just like this single minded, like a a pure blast where you you didn't get the impression that it was show business at any point. Right. So that was one thing the sort of sincere ferocity and then the other thing was there was a sense of there was like an accomplished execution like none of it seemed slap slapdick at all it seemed, it wasn't like a lot of bands felt like they could get by uh with just good enough and minor threat seemed like they were they were they wanted to be incredible mm-hmm. right and so if you contrast that with this sort of studio piece together like Oh, the kind of music the Wax Tracks bands were doing, which was all about image and uh, effect rather than intensity, right? They like things were done in a kind of a casual, half-assed way, and then kind of shuttled into some sort of a shape that represented uh, a kind of intensity without actually being intense right. to start right. with. So it just seemed like the, like the diametric op. That's what seemed odd about it was that it seemed like, you know, like the things that differentiated Minor Threat from all the other bands were these two things that were literally absent from that scene. You know, well, that's what. That's, and, it, and for an example, like that. I mean, and the point well taken. Like I remember, like a good example of this in my mind is that they were like. We really want to do shows. Won't you perform those songs with us? And I said, I've told you, I'm not. I'm definitely not going to do. It. I mean, there's no way I was going to do it ever. I'm just not going to do it. And they ended up, you know, they had a roadie with a shaved head, and they had him sing the song. 
<laughs> so they, they did Palehead song. This kid with a shaved head would get on stage and play. And I've had not just once, but numerous times people tell me that they saw me sing with Palehead. And I said it wasn't me. And one time I almost got into a fight over it with a guy who was so upset with me for saying that it wasn't with me when he saw you, dude. <laughs> you know, like that guy, you know, like he was so, how do you, he got so upset. How do they know upset. it wasn't Ben Kingsley? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then actually another time this couple came up to me and this woman said, you know, this, you know, we're such huge fans, but I always lord over one thing with my, my husband, um, that I got to see with Palehead, and he never did. He always that I should I just lord that over him. I said like, well, you can stop now. Yeah, that's because you never saw me with Palehead. And then she was like, what? No, you were there. I said, I guarantee. Look, look, that's the thing. Like those guys had no problem putting up a ball. That they put a long haired dude doing the song. That's fine, but put the bald guy up there. Come on, you know that just. But I think that's an example of the kind of thing. I just never would have done it. Yeah. Period. And I think they would be happy to do it. So. But I don't know. I don't. I, I really didn't. Funny is like that was a brief moment. Like I knew those guys for like, I knew you know, I met them like three times or you know four times, and right. I and I knew them for two years. And then after that, it was all just like them, like this stuff about like, um, like you know when they were suing each other, you know people calling me and said like, do you want to get involved? And I said, no, <laughs> you want to get involved in this lawsuit? That's a yeah. That's like, hey, we're having this. Uh, we're having this. Um, a divorce, raw beef you know, like a salad <laughs> testing tasting. Do you want to? Do you want to get involved in that? Right. There's one thing I, I should say about the other thing that there's another factor that kind of ties in with the southern thing was that one of the reasons that Jurgensen's why I was interested about his production was that he had been really influenced by Adrian Sherwood, who I was also a huge fan of. And Adrian Sherwood is a dub producer who worked with John. He was like a, a regular at Southern, and I thought he was a really fascinating like i love dub music and i was fascinated by his work did you ever meet adrian yeah Steve? i met him there was a, a the the first time i ever spent significant time in, in england was when big black went over on our first tour we were invited over by paul smith from blast first yeah and he to his credit he took us around to see a bunch of record labels because we hadn't decided like we had to make a decision about who was going to put our records out over there because we didn't have, we'd separated from Homestead and Touch and Go was putting our records out in America, but we didn't have any affiliation overseas, and so we were, in, we were talking to a bunch of different record labels to see who was going to put our records out over there, and Paul Smith ran Blast first, and he introduced us to a bunch of different people. Um, basically, saying, you know, I want to put your records out, but you might find yourself more aligned with one of these other people so we met with um what's his face from rough trade jeff travis yeah uh -huh. uh, and we met with loader at southern and we met with um daniel miller at mute and mm -hmm. like two or three other people and um uh one of the, one while we were at southern uh we had expressed an interest we thought it would be interesting to do a record with Adrian Sherwood because his his production aesthetic seemed like nicely abstract relative to a lot of other people at the time, and so we thought it would be cool for Big Black to do a record with Adrian Sherwood, that would and have been he came. Fascinating. What's that? <laughs> that would have been fascinating to hear what he what he would. Well, he brought some stuff for us to listen to, and I'll have to say it was like more rock style music that he had worked on, and none of us were that into it like it had a kind of a uniformly 
sort of plastered sound that didn't what I yeah. the stuff of his that I had liked was the stuff like some of his like dub stuff which where every song had a fairly radically different presentation you know yes. and what I found disappointing was that sort of as the drugs kicked in his uh, his approach kind of formalized hey I'm Ryan Reynolds at Mint Mobile we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does they charge you a lot we charge you a little so naturally when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch. $45 up front for 3 months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com/weightloss. That's plushcare.com/weightloss. Then he was just sort of like overdriving everything. And so the production aesthetic sort of boiled down to this like transistorized distortion and saturation with a bunch of reverb on everything and all the stuff that he played us all sounded monolithically the same and not that interesting so that you're, kind of yeah, scuttled that um, it's really but, i have to say you're it's a really it's a really good assessment because i found his like his i met him early on i was actually at the tune for a missing channel um session like that oh wow that, which was incredible. Like I just saw them recording and it was just mind blowing. But the later on, it, I just, it was just sort of, it became less and less interesting, but he was a, I think he was a brilliant, he's a revolutionary guy in the studio. Um, he really played the mixing decks desk in a way that was, you know, he, he, it wasn't like he got everything set and just sat there and watched it. Like when he did it all live, like everything was like, yeah. He and he really did take to heart the idea that like he did really did in, do an interpretation of the Jamaican dub, technique right. where you start with a master tape and then you build a freakish environment from that as raw material and right. that you know that nobody else was doing that people were sort of making feints at it like putting a few effects here and there but he really did i thought he really made some remarkable records and um you know so we were kind of curious if it would be possible to graft our kind of thing where we would like like we were pretty settled and set in our ways about how we wanted to do things and we thought it might be a good idea to disrupt that and in in the end we ended up doing a record with loader instead of right. adrian and that worked out great because yeah that would make a he lot became more. a mentor of mine and he you know he taught me a lot about doing stuff in the studio and i you know i owe a lot of what i've been able to do since to what he taught me and what you know the example that he set so now I'm not sure if you guys shared any stages uh, at any point or when the first time you did work together was, but I know that Ian, your band Fugazi worked with Steve on early sessions towards the Fugazi record and on the Kill Taker. And I'm curious, how did that collaboration actually come about? Um, they called on the phone. Yeah, I mean Steve, we had, I mean, we got to know Steve. We every time we go to Chicago, we spent, you know, we saw him there, and we maybe we saw you in England. We, I remember where did we remember we played football that time. We played with the we played oh one yeah game of soccer that one was game of weird football. it was like the southern staff versus fugazi or something like that 
But you were there too. Like you were with us. I mean, like, yeah. I think I, I can't remember what I was doing there, but I was there for some reason. It was know? like yeah. There was like they, we played like in Pierre. Remember Pierre, the French dude, and we played, <laughs> yeah. And it was like we had we we just played one half one game of soccer and one game of American football. And it, was just, <laughs> it was really funny. It was a really it's just like we were just fucking around. But so we got to know Steve and we got to know got to love him. Like spending time out in Chicago. Um, and getting to see Steve was always just great, you know. And you know, we always stayed with Corey in Touch and Go. And at that point, I think you know you were pretty much around. You know, you were just there, yeah. and you were sort of the house. It was a very hospitable engine. era. Like people yeah. were always hosting people at their houses, or like if there was, like like people like Ian said he came to Chicago to do the palehead thing or whatever, and he probably stayed with Jim and Danny at Wax Tracks, or he probably yes. or he may have stayed at Corey's place. Or but I stayed in Jim like, and Danny, and then I went up to Corey's and stayed with him. Yeah, and then, like, when I'd go to England, whenever I'd go to London for any reason, I would stay at Southern. Like, it didn't matter what I was doing. Like, I could be going there to work on a completely unassociated record. I would always be invited to crash at Southern, you know. Likewise, a- I would stay I would stay at the Loader's house for three weeks. I mean, I'd stay there for – I would be there – I mean, I went there many, many times and just by myself, and I would just stay there for weeks on end. And they never – there was always – so it was a very hospitable time. This, I'd never stay in a hotel in London. Yeah, it was really weird for me the first time I actually had to find a place to stay when I went to London, you know. It was after John um, died. It was like, where, where are we going to stay? What are we going to exactly, do now? You know? Yeah, exactly. I'm still thinking about that because now Alison Schnackenberg's out of there, too. And I was like, where yeah. are we going to stay if I ever He's, go back? Loder's um, one of those dudes, like, like you build him into your life as like, well, when we go, when we go to London, we're going to deal with John, and then that'll be that, right? And, you, and it just becomes like a sort of a standard thing. Like, you build these people into your lives, and then suddenly they're gone, and it's like, holy crap, I, I have to, like, rebuild my worldview now because this, yeah, like, true. elemental part is gone, you know? Yeah. So we got to know Steve, and I think we were all really, you know, we were fans um, of each other, like the band and Steve. And at some point, I remember Steve saying... Hey, you know, if you guys ever want to record something, you know, it's on me. This is back when you still at the house. Right, um, right. And uh, so we always had that in our back pocket as a possibility, which was really nice. And you know, we always worked with Don here in Washington. And, um, it, you know, we did one record with John Loader. Um, and then we did, but everything else we'd ever done ever was with, really, it was either, if not in our own, like our own recording, we just did with Inner Ear, uh, Don Zentera. We had spent, um, in 1992, I guess it was 92. I guess, well, yeah, 92. We spent, let me think, is that right? It was in 91. I guess it was 92. We, we spent, we had been working away on new songs and we just kind of hit a wall at some point, you know, with the, you know, we, we kind of, yeah, we just sort of maxed out. We've been working on these ideas. And we couldn't, we just couldn't quite. I don't know, we just need to do something. And I suggested to the band, like, hey, why don't we just get out of town? Let's go to Chicago for a weekend and record two songs with Steve. Let's just go do let's just go do something. Like let's get out of Washington. We're like so deep. We've been working, we have all these songs written, but we're still agonizing over them. We haven't we can't really decide on them. But let's just break out together, the four of us. Uh, and so I called Steve, and he said, "Of course, you know." And we found a weekend that worked. I think it was in November. Um, was it ninety two? I think it was ninety two. Might have been ninety one. That sounds. It might have been ninety one. I, I don't. Was, yeah, no, I honestly I, don't remember. I'm, but it, maybe it was ninety one because I do. That's interesting. But anyway, um, so I think it was ninety one. Um, so we went. We. I think I had. I. 
I rented a minivan. I remember I rented a minivan, and and Brendan had a Volvo station wagon. So we just threw our gear in the back of the two vehicles, and Joe and I drove up in the minivan, and Brendan and Guy drove up uh, in the Volvo, and we went right to Steve's house, um, and uh, we loaded in like on a Friday. I said, we're just going to do two songs. And three days later, we had recorded like 13 songs, and it was the greatest session we ever had. It was the most huh. – we had a, a blast. Like it was just hanging with Steve and working in the studio. It was just so – such a pleasure and so enjoyable and so fucking funny. We just – you know, it was like we just laughed and laughed, which is always – you know, for me, it's always – you know, that's just – that's kind of like the essence of – of the the creative process of being with people you just can really laugh with and um and and Don Santerra is somebody who like you know like, you know we just the guy is, we've had so many yucks in that joint and um so the session was just incredible like we had such a great time uh and I still there's so many I have so many like sort of acute memories of like moments and and things like that um and then you know we drove home I, mean, I think again we had planned on recording two songs. I think we recorded and we recorded and mixed twelve or thirteen songs um, in three days, which was crazy. You can see the, how intensely we were working. We were just going around the clock. Um, Steve, do you have any do you have any insight on that? How did it go from a two song session to thirteen? Well, I mean that was kind of that was kind of standard in the day, though. I mean, when a band. You know, if a band had a bunch of stuff to record and a fixed amount of time or fixed amount of money to deal with, like then you, you just get it done. You know, I, I mean, it, I, I think about other records that were done in that same period. Like, I did two Silkworm albums, and neither one of them took more than two calendar days. You know, in that same period. You know, and that and that it was just kind of standard for bands to just go into the studio and knock it out, and then you know, sleep when it's over. Right. I think mostly we had just been, I think in our mind, we were like, well, let's just do two songs, but mostly because we were thinking we were just going to hang out and have, you know, just see people and record two songs. But it just sounded so fucking incredible. Like, it just sounded great. And I think, you know, Steve's like, why don't you do another one? And we're like, you know, do you got another one? Yeah, we'll do another one. And we just kept on, we just kept on doing another one. It was great. Huh. It was just, you know, but, was, but but the sessions you did together didn't end up getting released. No, Fugazi ended up re-recording and on the kill taker with uh, Ted nicely, right? Uh, well, yeah, Don's. Yeah, we drove. What happened was we were driving. I remember this. So this is like we were drove. We we're driving back from from Chicago. We left. Like I remember we had like this last night hanging out with Corey, maybe and and Stephen Corey, I think, and maybe we went to dinner and. Maybe we played dice. I don't remember. I think we probably played some Kariki. and um, yeah, that makes sense. And then we hit the road around ten o'clock at night to drive back to DC, and so we were we were driving along, and um, I think you know we had the two cars. It's in the middle of the night, and probably in Ohio or something. I said to Joe, "Should we give this thing a spin?" And he said, "Yeah, let's do it." So I put the cassette in, and I just. You know, it just didn't sound right to me, and I and I thought, but you know, that's not unusual when you're in a session so intensively for days. Like when you come out of it, like the first time you listen to it, it's a little bit like, oh, that's not working. And um, so I, we turned it off, <laughs> and we drove for a while, and then we got to Pennsylvania. You know, it's probably like four in the morning, so let's try again. We, you know, we kind of queued it up, and it just didn't sound right. It just didn't sound right. Um, and we got home and unloaded the van and. The next morning, I 
I called, you know, Brendan and Gee and said, you know, hey, how's your drive? And they said, oh, it was great. And we got in at whatever, 7 o'clock or whatever time we got in. And there was like this long kind of pause. And then uh, I said, so did you, uh, did you listen to the tape? They had their copy of the tape too. <laughs> and they said, uh, why, did you? I said, yeah, did you? And they said, yeah. <laughs> so, and they're like, sound kind of weird. I go, yeah, sound kind of weird. Yeah. And then like a Two days later, or a day later, I get a fax from Steve saying, "Like, I think maybe we kind of fumbled on this one." <laughs> but I don't know what. I don't know why. I don't know. I think it just didn't. Something just didn't. I don't know what it was. Remember faxes. I mean, Steve, what's your Steve? What's your take on that? Uh, yeah, I'm, I think it, it, it wasn't my finest hour as an engineer. I think we kind of got lost in the in the hang, and we're enjoying each other's company. And um, uh, I, I probably, you know, in the in the interest of getting a lot done, I think I was probably. I don't think it was like I, I guess the easiest way to put it is sometimes you eat the bear, sometimes the bear eats you, and I, I think <laughs> uh, luck of the draw. Like we could have, if we had done the set. I mean, it's just as likely that we could have done the session and had it come out awesome. But as it turns out, it came out in a way where we enjoyed everything about it except the results. You know, I mean, I have to say, I can remember sitting in the attic where the mixing room was. Like in the top floor, is that my wrist? Right, it was up in the eaves, right? Wasn't yeah. up in the top floor? Yeah. And listening to it, we were doing a playback, and I remember thinking, "This is the greatest record ever made." <laughs> I mean, it was that kind of like I was so ecstatic and just thinking, like, you know, take that Sonic Youth or whatever the you know whatever the fuck whoever was a big band at the time. I was just like really like thinking like this is going to be incredible, and um, uh, you know. I think that everything, yeah, everything about that session was just great. And I have to say that it was, I mean, it was, it was a very important experience for Fugazi, like the, you know, for the four of us. It was a really to be, you know, um, to, to, you know, to be able to step out of Washington to go, you know, that we didn't do that very often. We just the four of us just go do some work like that and just kind of, and really, it was something. We're so pragmatic in a way. We just never would go somewhere to record. You know, that right. was like, that was unusual for us. And I mean, we might go to this house in Connecticut and work on ideas, but that was really like, let's go to Chicago and record. And and we did it, and it was it was amazing. And I think that we really like it solidified. I mean, it certainly helped us work on the songs. I mean, some of the songs we hadn't really finished, and and so we were forced. When you record, you of course you're forced to make an arrangement. Um, and and we did, and some of those arrangements, you know, we some of them, most of them stuck. Not that they were all open ended, but you know, there were there were some that were not finished, and some of them we we, we were like, oh, you know what, this yeah, it's not quite right. Mostly, I think we just needed to take more time recording. Right. And if we had spent a week there, it would have been probably would have had a different thing. The other thing is, you know, when you're working with somebody for the first time, and this goes for, you know, I've recorded. I've been in probably hundreds of sessions, but really, I, I there's like three or four times that I've ever worked outside of inner ear, and what you know, like with Fugazi, we did it once with Loader and once with Steve, um, not counting like radio mm-hmm. stuff, but like radio broadcast things. But and when you go into that kind of when you go into a recording session, it's an intimate process, and you have to get to know the people, and there's like. And you know, I remember I remember this so well that I said, you know, I said um, we were recording in Chicago. I said, I said to you, um, 
something like you know well, maybe we can make this a little bit more, make this a little warmer and you said oh i don't I, I don't i don't believe in that i don't use that word i don't believe in that concept <laughs> i was probably I was a real like, prick what? about it like, too <laughs> i mean it, it just threw it out i was like i mean what what is there not to believe about it but you're just so hardcore like i don't i don't use that word i don't believe in the concept and i was like oh, all right and i mean but mostly it's 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 a semantic thing you know it's just semantics yeah. and trying to understand but also you know like if nothing else that whole thing like the fact that we didn't end up with usable results like if nothing else it validated that you guys were doing it the right way in the first place you know keeping everything hands on doing it yourselves like stick, sticking with people that already understand you instead of people that had to try to figure you out, you know, like, right. So, and the resulting actual record is terrific, you know, and you can't really, and if that's the process that it took for you guys to get to that record, I'm fine with it, you know. Also, the other thing about, I'm going to say another thing about that experience of recording with you, which was so significant for us, is that we didn't, we didn't really, like, people didn't come to our practices. Like we didn't, you know, we weren't like, you know, we didn't perform for people. And, you know, that was like, we, you know, we, that was like, we took our, you know, when you, when you play your song for someone, especially in that kind of setting, you know, that you, we're handing our heart, you know, to that person, like in a way. So like playing and like the kind of, like, like Steve as an engineer, I mean, I mean, Steve's a, a brilliant fellow and, and very, you know, he's, he's got a lacerating wit and he doesn't, he does not, you know, he doesn't suffer fools. That's for sure. I'm going to put that um, on my business he's card. He's also, <laughs> right. He's also like, you know, a g- truly genuinely sweet guy who loves music and is incredibly enthusiastic. And when you work with him and you feel that it makes you, you know, you feel like a superhero. Like you just start to, and like, I think that that was, I mean, if anything, probably we were just like so elated we were playing these songs. He's like, "This is great." I'm like, "Fuck!" <laughs> this guy is likes our music. We're, I mean, not that he, we didn't think you liked our band, but just like these are new songs. We hadn't really tried them out on anybody. Like you know, some of the stuff we played live, but a lot of it we hadn't, and it was just so exciting. It was a, it was an interesting process, you know, to play to somebody who didn't, you know, you hadn't really done a lot of time with. Um, but also, I think that's probably part of why Steve's made so many, you know, so many records and so many important records um, and so many great records um, is that because he he understands that, you know, the engineer slash producer person um, has to ha- have a, has to make an investment, you know, has to also have an, an enthusiasm, has to, to love the fuck out of it. Um, whether or not, you know, people can understand that from afar is like, when you go into the studio, the most important thing as a, a musician when you're playing is to be like when you finish tracking something that somebody on the other end of the of you know the wire comes through and says great or you know actually who's listening as opposed to I've had a few experiences where I've been recording and then you know it, you know you clicks into the, the control room and no one says anything and that's a terrible feeling you're like and then you go like well how was that and you're like uh. I mean that's what the, that's what band that's what bands do. You know that's what bands do to each other. But it's important to have somebody as a referee, somebody who actually has like you know has also is interested in the project and isn't just sort of like are you are you happy with that or not? I mean Steve, he pushed us hard and we and we fucking went hard. I mean we listen to some of these listen recordings. You can like I mean Guy and I are just singing so hard. We're just, just like, going really went hard on that thing because we were. You know, we wanted to we wanted to knock it out of the park. 
and we really did. We put it right out of the park. Well, my the 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 only like my two cents about that recording session were like the best thing about it for me was that it we got to hang like we got to hang out the whole band got to hang out for a while and we got to know each other and got and realized that we were actually friends instead of just people that sort of knew each other and sort of admired each other and then uh we then then we had excuses to hang out again when shellac played with fugazi a number of times and that was always terrific like every time it was a blast you know mm-hmm. we we did some tra- we traveled in australia with them and we played some shows over in england with them and uh, we hosted them in chicago and it was just every time it was just just like it was like hanging with family it was really really great and so that that was the beginning of that sort of relationship which w- that's the thing that i take out of it and then also i think what ian was saying was like um I, as a fan, I was kind of, you know, getting into it a bit much during the session. And I think my bedside manner has changed. And that might have been one of the things that changed it was realizing that me being into it doesn't necessarily make for better results. And I've gotten an awful lot more cold-blooded about my... Uh, what I what I will allow music to affect me, how much I will allow the music to affect me in the studio, and I think I've I think results have gotten better as a result. In a way, I feel like I'm slightly cheating myself from the fan experience during the session, <laughs> but uh, it definitely impinges on my like my critical facilities and my like attention span. Like if I'm allowing if I allow myself to like get stoked about what's going on then i'm dropping the ball technically more times than not so i i definitely sort of take a cold shower in the studio now whereas (laughs) at that point i was probably still you know humping everything you know (laughs) right right i can dig that i mean especially i think is it i think i mean i've i've never been an engineer exactly i mean i've done some attempts at engineering but um i'm usually sort of the fifth like i like the fifth member of the band or the mm-hmm. you know whatever the the extra person the producer seat and so i think that role i think in in your case like you know you're the engineer and you're the producer so you had sort of a, a dual i think you're right the engineer kind of has to be more like kind of has to be cold-blooded even the i guess even to some degree i think that the person producing it has to be but i think it's also i feel like it's important to have some investment otherwise it just becomes like a i don't know it just seems like you would lose you would just lose touch. But, of course, you're, that's your job. I mean, you have to do that all the time. And I imagine that there's I – mean, I remember talking to somebody who worked in a studio, and he was really – he said he, he had a small studio, but it was getting popular, and he said he couldn't stand some of the bands there. He just didn't like their music. And I said, well, too bad, you know. Right. <laughs> like you, yeah, you that's what the money's for. Them. Right, that's right. Like you're, they're, they're, you're, you're, it's not like they're, they're, it's not a reflection on you. Like the fact that they, their music is like you don't think their music is cool or something. It's like you're supposed to help them arrive at what it is they're trying to get to. And yeah, that's been that's, your job. that's that's been that was like a a real sore point for me. Like what I mean, you remember what it was like trying to get into a studio when you had no money in the early '80s, for example. Like you're going through the yellow pages trying to find a studio that would let you in and trying to find one that would tell you what their prices were and trying to find, you know, of those, right. trying to find the cheapest one. And then you finally get into the studio and then and the engineer, like, tells your guitar player he can't 
turn his amp up that loud, that kind of stuff. Like that's, right, no distortion. Yeah, that crap happened all the time yeah. to bands that right. like of our generation before there were sympathetic studios, mm-hmm. you know. And mm-hmm. it, you know, so I I had sort of internally committed to not being that guy. Like if a guy sh- if a band showed up with some fucked up setup or from some something that I didn't get, my initial response shouldn't be that you got your band is wrong and you should change that. My initial response should be I have to figure out how to deal with that rather than, you know, expecting the band to conform to my expectations. Right. So that that was informed by all of that, you know, and and I kind and it sort of extended that and I've made a logical connection in my head like it really isn't my place to like or not like the music that I'm working on. When I'm in the, working in the studio, it's like it's literally none of my business what kind of record the band want to make. And if I start forming opinions, that's the first step toward treating some of those bands less with less of my attention than others, you know, because you just can't mm-hmm. if you if you like band A and you don't like band B, then band B are not going to get a fair shake, you know, and that's not that's not I don't I just don't don't like that as a perspective. So I've I've kind of I've kind of like emotionally deadened myself in the studio. <laughs> and uh, one other thing that I took from that session was Ian taught me a trick that I have used countless times since then. There's a thing like when people are self-conscious about their vocal, they often want to double their vocals, right? And people who are not self-conscious about it, about their vocals, will sometimes double their vocals for effect, for a very specific effect. And either way, like the conventional technique is to listen to the lead vocal and sing along with it, right? Ian showed me this thing that he did when he wanted to double his vocal, which is he would memorize the cadence of his singing and then sing the second vocal layer without listening to the first one so that his each vocal delivery was independent and rather than and there's a thing there where if you're not listening to something while you're singing then your tuning is more the tuning of your voice is more confident uh, the delivery is more confident everything about it is more sort of solid because it's it's sort of standing on its own as far as the performance is concerned. And then when you play the two back together, instead of having a lead vocal and a slightly out of tune, slightly timid doubling vocal, you have these two very strong, very bold, very in tune vocal performances that sound much better together doubled. So I'd never, I had never tried doubling vocals that way. And Ian showed me how to do that. And so, and I've, I've suggested that to to bands a hundred times since then. Well, a hundred is an understatement. so thank you. And you say you're not an engineer. <laughs> well, the thing about me as a singer, I when I try to double my voice, if I heard my original vocal in there, um I would always I'd always key off of it. I just I I try to like weird do the weird almost like I started to harmonize or something to it in a way that just was not um I just couldn't do it. I'd always go out of key and I I'm, I'm really my phrasing generally, like the stuff I'd want to double, usually the phrasing is like it is set in stone for me. I just the way I am, my time, like I don't need to hear myself in my head. I know exactly where the vocal is going to go. Um, but also, I do think that people, like I find double vocals, most people, as you as Steve said, most people are like they're more comfortable. They don't, they're, they feel less naked. 
Um, but I think that when you double vocals, it's it's another it's another form of processing, and it ultimately takes like the soul out of the out of the recording. A lot of like you know, I think the the greatest punk records, the greatest records, is this when you have the single voice. I oh, know the, yeah. the singer themselves may may they may be struggling, they may struggle with that. But I always say just like tough shit they just you know sing and then if you want to have like you know there's a couple moments where i'm like i want to double this one phrase because actually you want to just make it really like trumpets almost or something like that's that's how i was looking at it. it's, like, it's like trumpets and and um really you know i mean uh, an example of that would be um they i always think about it, I was like there's a um the song no reason by minor threat which you know the chorus is doubled and that was really. It's like a, if you if you you know you listen to it. It's really almost like there's like a, 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 an array of trumpets blowing. That's the idea in my mind. Like to have it really pro, like powerful and and sticking out that way. Um, so there's there's definitely been a lot of like like over the years. Just from I have a lot of experience in the studio as a, as a musician and also as a producer. I was thinking about this actually this morning. Oddly, I was not sleeping at like four thirty in the morning and. I got to thinking about it. I was trying to think of like how many sessions I've been in or how many bands I've produced. And I realized I have no record of that, like other than the actual records. But I mean, I did more. I just don't have any idea. And I was, and I think that very few people have any sense of the amount of time I did in the studio, you know. And over the years, I think that people think of me like, well, he's the guy that does the record label or he's the guy who's in the band or whatever. But um, I used to, I loved producing bands when I was doing it. I haven't done it in, in years, mostly because I just, I think that my relationship, people's relationship with me has changed. They, not people want me to re, to record them because my name would look, you know, it brings a certain. It's my name they want. Um, whereas before, I was just recording with people who are my friends who just wanted somebody to referee or to kind of give them like an outside perspective on it. Um, and also because again, I love being in the submarine. Like I mm-hmm. love that. I love being in the submarine, just locked in with some people and trying to figure out how to get back to the surface. Um, I was going to say that Steve's point about recording, the first recording session I ever w- did was when I was in this band, the Teen Idols. And we went to a small studio outside of Washington and the uh, the engineer completely ridiculed us, like just just made fun of our songs in a way and wouldn't let us, made us turn down the distortion and totally like didn't, wouldn't, this, the way he recorded it was just, he put he printed reverb all over everything. In other words, it was like to tape. Mm-hmm. He put the reverb on the tape, and 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 at one point there was once we did two sessions with him. And I remember one session, you know, he had, it was in his basement, but he had cut in a, a window between the control room and the live room. And while we were tracking, another band had come in to look at the studio, and he was pointing at us, and they were all laughing while we were tracking a song, <laughs> and it was just horrible it really it was so horrible and it made me just hate it's like it's like music shops like music store you know music store how much how would fucking assholes those people were like when you go to a music store and they'd say things like what do you have a band and you're like fuck you like i'm i'm purchasing from you i don't need to be like have you have you ever heard um, uh terry's terry from the x's story about how he bought his guitar no um Terry was invited to be in this punk band. He'd never played guitar before, and he didn't have a guitar. Mm. And uh, so he went to the guitar shop, and he said, do you have any guitars for left-handed people? 
and wow. uh, and the guy said, "Well, I, uh, let me look at the. And you can look in the catalog here. We we can get you one of these." And w- the first thing the guy pointed to, Terry said, "Yeah, that's fine. Go ahead and get that guitar for me." <laughs> and he never never played a note didn't even really know what it was and then he came back after the guitar had, had arrived like he came back and the guy said yeah yeah do you want to plug it in and play it and and he was like no no that's fine I'll, uh, this i'm sure this is fine and he just left with it he didn't want to he didn't want to have to <laughs> plug the guitar in without knowing how to play it in front of anybody and then the band started and he, they went and played a show I mean, that's, I have to say that having I just had those guys here for the last couple of days, and I just saw them play the other night, and it's so like it's so Terry that story, because yeah. <laughs> he plays like no other person, you know. He's just, um, um, but to follow on my point though is that we finally were invited like by this friend of ours, Skip Groff. He said, you know, I know another studio. This guy Don Zentera, and you know, do you want to go with me? And we thought, well, maybe Skip, who he had a record store here and he had, he had done some recording with people and had put out a few records. And uh, he was a, very, a hugely important figure in our scene, like an older guy that really like took a lot of us under his wing. Mm-hmm. And uh, so he took us to, this, to the studio in Virginia. Um, and, uh, I mean, we went in really defensive, having basically been traumatized and abused by this other place. But Don... Never he Don said, Well, what do you just set up the way you want to sound? And he, as an engineer, I mean, really what he was about was trying to help bands like sound like the way they wanted to sound. And it was an incredible like it was revelatory for me to to meet somebody like that. And I've worked with him for thirty five years since then. Like I still I was with, I was in the studio with him last week, you know, just doing some just you know, getting some uh just getting old tapes sorted out. But mm. um but you know, a really deep relationship came from that, but really it was a profound thing to meet somebody who was like, let's get what you want to sound like. You know, let's figure out your, he'd never, he didn't try to change a wit of us, you know, and, and he, his job was, was to do as good a recording as possible. And, you know, he was super, you know, he had a handmade, that he had built his own board. It was a four track studio, but those tapes still sound great. Like they still, like his recordings are great. And it was, you know, really an incredible experience. And, and actually, in that first session, and this will kind of give you like the a sense of Don's and Tara that, you know, Skip had said to me like, "Well, if you guys, what do you want to do with these tapes?" And we said, "Well, you don't know. Like, we don't know. We're just recording. We have no idea." And I said, "Yeah, I mean, it's not like you know, anyone's going to put it out." And he's like, "Well, maybe a label would." And there was a label here called Round Raoul records i i had no idea who they <laughs> round were. raul and i just yeah so i just said um i just you know because i'm a fucking loud mouth i just said like it's not like those fucking assholes at round raul are gonna put this thing out even though i didn't know who they were but turned out that don was round raul <laughs> and i'm like sitting in this little control room with him and don and skip said what they're don that's his label and i'm like oh well i mean well <laughs> I said, you know, I mean, no offense, <laughs> but Don didn't take any offense because that's Don. He didn't. He just laughed. He just said, like, I mean, he knew that I, he knew that I didn't know what, what the hell I was talking about. But he and he got the spirit of it yeah. anyway. Yeah. Um, and you know, that so I think that that meeting that like, he was one of the first, you know, probably one of the earliest studios where really he just was open. He's an art guy. He just wants people to get what they want, 
and he, you know, he's professional as hell and super knowledgeable, but so unorthodox. Like the gear he has still is just so weird compared to other studios, and he just doesn't care. Don does not give a fuck, and I love right. that about him. He's a. Have you met Don before, Steve? Yeah, I've, I think I've only met him once, though. He's a really he's an uncanny guy, you know. And he's just somebody. And I've met a couple other studio guys over the years who remind me of him. But he's a really, he's a really, he's an interesting guy. And his studio still just goes on and on and on. Even though people have said, like, you know, if, if you don't make this move technically, techno, technological move, like your your studio's over. And yet he just keeps right. on going. Yeah, I found that people with advice like that typically themselves are not running a successful studio. So I, you can ignore the, that kind of advice, right. you know. Exactly. And, all, and over the years, everybody, every studio that has jumped at all the latest technological changes, like they, they've invested in in this one specific moment in history, and then of course, as technology changes, that that investment then is wasted. Right. So the studios that have survived right. are the ones that have either had minimal investment, so they're very sort of quick on their feet to adapt, or they're in, they've invested in a specific like core technology and then just decided that they're going to stick with it. And that's, you know, that's the model that we've opted for. Now, Steve, I don't know if this is fair to direct to you, but do you have any knowledge of how the kill taker sessions that you worked on began circulating publicly? I don't know. No, but um, the way that typically happens is that somebody is, you know, a friend or, or someone affiliated with the band uh, you know, has a copy, and then uh, you know someone else will sort of blag a copy. Uh, you know, with the caveat that of course I'd never share it with anybody. Right. And then they share it with someone else who says, "Oh, you know, of course I would never share it with anybody." <laughs> and eventually, it gets to somebody who's more than happy to share it with <laughs> with everybody. So. Or they just don't even know. They don't even know they're not supposed yeah. to share. Yeah. By the time it gets three or four bounces away, you know, the whatever promises were made initially don't don't really hold any sway. Right. I know. I never. I don't even well, think really I have a copy of it. it. I've never given. I've never. I don't. Yeah. I, I think I had a copy of it at the time, um, just for listening purposes. But I wouldn't have any any idea how to find it now. So. Okay. And I would say, and I would say that, and I would say that, like, there also in other ways that quite often like. People in the studio who have other engineers or whoever people may have access say, like, oh, you should check, you know, do you want to hear that? And then, you know, that's, I mean, one of the problems is once it went, I mean, if it's a cassette, it's a little bit of a different thing. But once it got into the digital realm, it doesn't, people just can just knock stuff off in a heartbeat. When we were so, we buried that fucking thing. Like, I remember I had sent one copy to our roadie, (laughs) this guy, Mark Sullivan. I gave him a copy and then, he had sent it to his brother in Boston, and I called his brother and said, send me the tape back, and did you give any copy wow. And he oh, sent wow. the tape back. That's how hardcore we went about it, because we were like, we got we just got to deep six it. But it's weird. Like, I don't, I mean, it's interesting. I have no idea, and it, but it's entirely possible that he made a copy of it. So who knows? And, and maybe over the years, like mm-hmm. Brendan... Or somebody, I have no idea. Like, you know, <laughs> I'm just curious. I'm just curious because it does circulate. And, and the, I mean, there's another another aspect of it is that like you've seen all the like the famous session multi tracks that make their way out onto the yeah. into the internet, and not, an awful lot of that comes from someone 
at a record label or someone who has control of a master will turn it over to a third party and say, uh, okay, we need a, I want to make a, a safety copy of this. So can you make me a safety copy of right. it? And then while that person is making a safety copy of it, they make one for themselves as well. Mm-hmm. And then then it starts right. that daisy chain of like, well, I can let you hear it. I can let, make you a copy, but you can't give it to anybody. And then, you know, three bounces later, everybody has it. Right. You know? Okay. No. Let's just blame Bob Weston. Let's just blame Bob <laughs> Weston for That was the song Great Cop by Fugazi. The best-known version of that song appears on their album In on the Kill Taker, but the version you just heard actually uh, is from the sessions they did with Steve Albini, which we were just discussing. And I hope you enjoyed part one of that conversation between Steve and Ian. And if you want to check out part two or other episodes of the show, you should know that Creative Control with Ishikana is on iTunes. You can subscribe to the show and listen to it there. You can also listen to it and follow it at audioboom.com. There's a Patreon page where you can make a flexible monthly donation to the show, and also you can view some t-shirts that we have for sale and are also giving away to people who uh, donate money. Go to patreon.com and look up Creative Control of Vishkana. You can also find the show on Facebook. There's a Facebook page, Creative Control of Vishkana. On Twitter, at Vish Creative, Creative with a K. I'm on Twitter, at Vishkana. Also with a K. I'll let you figure out where the K is. The show also exists as a uh, proper radio program on CFRU 93.3 FM in Guelph every Wednesday at noon Eastern Standard Time. Uh, You can listen to it in the region at 93.3 FM or anywhere in the world at CFRU.ca. And for uh, more information about me and and the show, you can go to vishkana.com. Okay, as I say, thanks for checking out Part 1 and Part 2 with Ian McKay and Steve Albini will be up shortly. Thank you.
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.